0: Right, Genesis chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tent. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelt then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my erdmen and thy erdmen, for we be brethren. It is not not the whole land before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and beheld all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like unto the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from the other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever." I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. And all God's children said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might behold the wonderful things that thou hast done to call a people unto thyself, to develop and nurture that relationship, and how they might grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, the title of this morning's sermon is Lot A Portrait of Grace and Division. Lot, A Portrait of Grace and Division. So this morning, obviously, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how um, Lot enjoyed the grace of God, how wonderfully he was treated in spite of the way um, he led his life. And the other thing I want us to appreciate is God working with us, how he works with us in terms of our internal struggles with our flesh. So I want to start by introducing Lot to us and ask the question, well, who is he? Well, as I said, he's going to be an example of grace, but he's also going to be a type of the flesh. Um, In Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, and also chapter 14, verse 12, he's described as Abraham's brother's son. Abraham's brother's son. So he is Abraham's nephew. He's the son of Abraham's brother, whose name is Haran. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 26, it tells us that Terah, which is Abram's father, was 70 years old and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, we should appreciate that that's not necessarily the birth order, but it's in the order of significance. Just like the Lord gave us the order of birth of um, Noah's children, he gave Shem first because from Shem is the line of Christ just like we know from Abram is going to be the line of Christ here in particular. But though in general, uh, all three of those boys uh, have um, a relationship to uh, Christ, somewhat more obscure than the others. But nevertheless, Abram, Nahor, and Haran are born into Terah, and that started when uh, Terah was 70 years old, um, but that is not the birth order. If you compare verse 32 of chapter 11 and verse 4 of chapter 12, you'll see that Haran was 130 years old, when he begat Abram. It says that he died when he was 205 years old, and it says that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. And so you do the math and you come up with, well, he was um, 130 years old when Abram was born. So what does this tell us here? It tells us that it could very well be that Lot was actually older than Abram. And that would be uh, something we might expect by virtue of the patterns we have seen in the scripture where the flesh precedes the spirit. We've seen that with respect to the order that the genealogies were given that they always give the genealogy of the natural man before they give the genealogy of the spiritual man or those that are related to Christ. Just teaching a spiritual truth not that there's any relationship between the flesh and um, what spiritual um, gifts we may receive from God. For we know that the flesh profited nothing and that men are born not by blood, nor by the will of um, the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I'm not contradicting any of that. I'm just showing you patterns that the Lord sets for us in scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15:45, he says, "Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual." And that chronicles the life of every person here. First, you walked as a natural man, and then the Lord um, shined the light. Of uh, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in your heart, and then you became a believer, and then the spiritual man was born at that time. So, when you consider the life of Lot, you would ask yourself, what would make anybody think he's a Christian? When you consider what's set before us in Scripture here, when there's a disputation there in Genesis 13, um, and he is proffered a choice of where he would go, what does he do? In verse 10, it says, and Lot lifted up his eyes. And beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. So we can appreciate that Ab- uh, that excuse me, that Lot is looking around, and he's asking himself, Well, where would I get the most profit for myself, uh, for my, um, for my cattle? Where would that work best for me? And so he follows what and does what we would expect the flesh to do. His eyes are looking down on the plain of jordan and we see that it is almost like the garden of eden in terms of how well it is watered and so you know he's going to prosper down there um, or he thinks he's going to so down he goes and uh so from the top of the mountain he goes from the place of the altar to the lowest place on the planet earth now we had talked about that last week where we saw that abraham descended from the mountain and went down into um, egypt and we saw that geographically he was going from the high to the low and then he reversed course when he had learned his lesson, and got spit out of Egypt, uh, chastened by the um, Gentile, and, sent back to, uh, and went back to where he had started and where he was um, uh, before the altar. So we would think to ourselves, and this is true, that um, Lot apparently didn't learn anything from that experience down in Egypt, and so he sees that the water down there is very much like it is down in Egypt, it's well watered, and that there are cities there, and so he's got eyes as big as silver dollars, And down to the plain of Jordan he goes. Um, In verse 12 of chapter 13 of Genesis, it says that, quote, Lot dwelt in the cities, that's plural, dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. So as he's drawn down there, based on what he sees uh, in terms of how it can provide for him, he sees the cities, and I think they are very alluring to him. And we've talked about that in the past, about how alluring the world is to the saint. Now, Jordan means their descent. And so he descends from the mountain down to the plain of Jordan, and he goes through each of the five cities that align the western bank of what is now the Dead Sea. And he ends up in Sodom. In uh, chapter 10, verse 19 of Genesis, we read about the borders of the land of Canaan. And it says, And the borders of the Canaanites were from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, and unto Gerar, they're listing the cities in a counterclockwise way. As thou goest to Sodom, then north of that would be Gomorrah, then Adam, then Zeboam, even unto Laisha And so those are the cities that Lot is going to go through. In reverse order, he's going to end up in Sodom. And as you might expect, those cities mean something in terms of their uh, their names. Laisha the first city he would come to, means unto blindness, which is... Uh, by virtue of the covering of the eyes and so when lot goes down there he's going to have to deny whatever um, he's learned uh, with uh by walking with abram and whatever he's learned at the altar of god and he's going to have to deny that and cover his eyes so that he can go down there and fulfill the lusts of the flesh Zebulun means troops that would be the next city he comes to and so there's a suggestion there that he's on the broadway through the wide gate wherein many enter thereat, which the Lord teaches us about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Um, Adama means earthiness, and certainly we can expect that that's the way the people down there are living very much in the flesh, and so they are very earthy. Gomorrah would be the next city he would come to, and that means bondage, and finally he ends up in Sodom, which means fetters fetters. So you can see how he's going down through the cities, that the Lord has given us the names of these cities, that it's getting worse and worse for him. He's gone from bondage finally to fetters. Fetters, of course, are the chains that you would shackle a prisoner in. Now, it is from this condition that the Lord finally sets him free. So somewhere along this uh, descent, Lot meets his worldly wife, to which he is unequally yoked. Now, Living amongst these people clearly influenced um, Lot in terms of the way he dealt with things that happened in his life. We know that when he the angels come to the city to remove him from it, that he offers up he proffers up his virgin daughters to them, that they would lie with his daughters rather than the people of the city. You know, rather than. Um, not doing that at all, rather than sheltering his daughters in his house and, and fighting, laying down his own life to keep his daughters from being violated by the people of the city. So clearly there's been some influence with respect to what's been going on in the city. Um, in, um, he fears to escape to the mountains. We read about this in Genesis 19, 19, that when they come to um, remove him from the city, he wants to negotiate with them and he fears going to the mountains lest some evil take me and I die. And so I wonder what would he have to fear in the mountains? I mean, we know it says that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land, but I wonder if he fears being in the presence of Abraham and the conviction that would result with him, again, being with Abraham, Abraham at the altar. From there, he goes up in a cave, and we read there that it's, it is at that place that his daughters inebriate his conscience— with wine, in other words they get him drunk, and they lie with him there committing incest. So obviously what's been taking place in those cities have influenced um, his daughters in terms of the things that they do, how they deal with the situation. So in the historical chronicles of the patriarchs, the last place we hear that Lot is is that he is in a cave, which is typically where the patriarchs were buried. They were all buried in caves, and this is certainly a poor testimony of life. I'm not saying he died there. I'm simply sharing with us what the Scripture shares with us so that uh, we can appreciate what lessons we can learn from it. So from, descent from the altar all the way down to a hole in the ground, that's kind of where his testimony ends. So what would make anybody think that Lot was one of the elect, that Lot was a saint? Well, there are some clues to what we can pick up in these early chapters of Genesis. Um, we can appreciate that in Genesis 14, 16, he's described as Abraham's brother, though we know that he's a nephew. Here in Genesis 13, that um, in verse 8, Abraham says to him that we are brethren. So Abram is helping us to appreciate that there's a close relationship with him, that he's his brother. And as uh, Christians, in that context, we can appreciate that we are brothers and sisters because we have a heavenly father. We are adopted sons of the father, and therefore we are brothers and sisters with one another. So that's a little bit of a clue that we can use to appreciate that Lot was one of God's elect. Um, In Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, when the Lord is speaking to Abraham after he's agreed to offer up and has offered up his son Isaac, Um, The Lord tells him in terms of the promises that he gives me says thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies Well, it's interesting that in a few chapters previous to that in Genesis chapter 19 when the angels come down to the city of Sodom Where do they find Lot sitting but in the gate of the city? well In Deuteronomy, that's where you learn that the judgment is rendered in a particular city. It's rendered in the gates of the city. So there is Lot sitting in the gate of the city as though it was a literal fulfillment or a spiritual fulfillment of what the Lord tells Abraham in 22.17. When he is um, defending the angels from the men of Sodom, in chapter 19, verse 19 of Genesis, they say, quote, Stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn and he will needs be a judge now. And so they are recognizing him in terms of his conduct that he is uh, passing judgment on them as though what they are doing is ungodly and evil, which indeed it is. So I'm sharing with you that there's this little subtle hint here that Lot is one of the elect because he is passing judgment or sitting in the gates of judgment on the enemies of God. So, In 22.17 and Genesis 19.1, they help us understand that God is not really speaking about the seed of the flesh, because this precedes uh, when um, Lot has any children, and Lot is not a son of Abram, but it's helping us to appreciate the seed of faith, which all Christians are. In Romans 9.8, which we've talked about in the past, it says, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise." children of the promise are counted for the seed. Galatians 3, 7, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So we can appreciate that since Lot is sitting in the city gate where judgment is rendered, that he is thought... Of as a child of Abraham by virtue of the faith that he has in God because it's by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone that people are saved and so our relationship with Abraham is always to be thought of in a spiritual context and never a fleshy context so we who are the saints we are the seed of faith we shall possess the gates of God's enemies um, which we do positionally in Christ when Christ judges we who are in him judge also. Recall that in John 5:22, the Lord says that all judgment has been commended unto him. All judgment has been commended into Jesus Christ. And yet he tells us, he tells the saints, he says, know ye not that the saints shall judge the world. And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye yet unworthy to judge the smallest manners? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? how much more the things pertaining to this life. So if the Lord is telling us that he is judge over all things and all judgment has been commended unto him and yet telling us that we judge, obviously we judge by virtue of the fact that we are in him. So positionally, we are going to judge. And so there we can appreciate the relationship between what the Lord says there in John and what the Lord says in Genesis um, 22 and where we see Lot sitting in Genesis 19. So these are clues that help us to figure out that Lot is one of the saints, and the biggest one, of course, happens when the Lord literally drags Lot from Sodom. He literally drags him from Sodom. And so when we get to 2 Peter, the Lord tells us very plainly um, that Lot is one of his own. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we read, speaking of the Lord, who turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Condemning them with an overthrow, making them examples unto those that should live, that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot. That's not to be understood as only Lot, but a a, um, a statement, a judicial statement, in terms of his position before the Lord. He is just. He's been justified by grace. So and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. So I want us to appreciate that though Lot was living there, he was bothering him internally by virtue of the things that he was seeing happen all around him. It was vexing him internally. For that righteous man, now he's identified as righteous, dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So the Lord is both telling us about the deeds that were taking place in Sodom, to which some people argue, well, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore, therefore we don't condemn what those people did, But here the Lord is telling us after he's come, after the law has been fulfilled in Christ, that those were ungodly, unlawful, and wicked deeds. Um, But he's identifying Lot as being just, righteous, having a righteous soul. And then it says in verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So Lot is godly, as described here also, and what those people are doing there are uh, showed as being unjust and deserving of God's punishment. So, with respect to what took place in Lot's life, we can appreciate that our loving and therefore jealous God literally pulls him out and destroys everything that came between Lot and his relationship with God, including his covetous wife. Now think about that. God is jealous and he loves you and will let nothing come between you and him. So whatever you have in your life that is between you and God, you can expect him to strip it from you, just as he did with Lot. So, while we can appreciate God's grace and mercy, evident in the way that he dealt with Lot, that he would suffer him to live the life that he did and yet save his soul, is a wonderful example about what we read in first corinthians about how god saves a man removes and burns up all his works and saves his soul in first corinthians fifteen excuse me first corinthians First corinthians three thirteen through fifteen we read every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is if any man's work abide which he hath built thereon Thereupon he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. With the exception of his two daughters, everything Lot had was burned up and destroyed. Clearly he built nothing on the foundation of Christ. He was doing his own thing down there in the city, and yet he was one of God's elect. So none of it stood the test of fire, but yet he was saved um, from his situation. And of the daughters, it was through the elder of the two daughters, that God brings forth the Moabites, from which comes Ruth, who was married to Boaz. They begot Obed, Jessed, Davi, and then came Christ. So we should appreciate that Christ came according to the flesh. So I'm going to move into this. lot's going to represent the flesh. Romans 1, 3, it says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So it was certainly a very fleshy means by which um, the um, line of David came about through um, Boaz and, and Ruth. So what does the Lord prove here in the way that he's handled things here? That the sins of men, no matter how egregious, will never frustrate the purpose of God. The sins of men, however, egregious, will never frustrate the purposes of God. And certainly the cross of Christ was the most flaring example of that. Christ, it says, was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, was taken, and by wicked hands crucified and slain. It was necessary that that be accomplished, and yet it was by wicked hands that it took place. And it furthered, certainly, the gospel and God's salvation for men. Um, Now, so after learning some wonderful truths about how God does not deal with us after our sins nor reward us according to our iniquities, as our deacon read this morning in Psalm 103.10, we appreciate Lot's life in that that light, because God did not deal with him according to his iniquities. He rescued him from um, Sodom and then took him to another place. Now, but there are other lessons that we can appreciate here, Um, particularly in the context of spiritual growth and maturity and the internal struggles experienced by Christians as they are shepherded by God as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you think of the book of Esther, you don't see God made um, direct reference to there, but obviously he's behind the scenes in in, um, um, orchestrating all external events to his glory. You see the same thing here in Genesis chapter 13 in terms of what takes place between Lot and Abraham. We should appreciate that God's hand is very much on it and he's teaching us certain things about this, these issues we have between um, the spirit and the flesh. So here in chapter 13 in the context that I want to speak next, we see that Lot is set before us as a representative of the flesh. As I mentioned, he is Abraham's, or Abraham's nephew and yet, as I said, he's described as Abram's brother in verse 16 of chapter 14 and also verse 8 of chapter 13. Um, It is in Genesis 14 where we read about how Lot who had been living in Sodom, in other words, he was in fetters, was taken prisoner by the Babylonians, which represent the world, and it is from there that Lot goes after him to rescue him. And so we should appreciate this, that as we become Christians and the Lord works with us, We don't want to let go of the flesh. We have this real struggle with the flesh. You know, we love it, and it has all sorts of things that it desires and loves in this world. And so it's very difficult for us to let go of. So this is an internal conflict that takes place at a lower level of which we are not necessarily, certainly not initially, we are not um, conscious of. There are all sorts of things going on in our body that we're not aware of. You know, you can have bacteria and virus and all sorts of things working in you that you're not aware of until finally it blows up. In like manner, you've got things going on in your spirit and your soul in the conflict with the flesh that you're not aware of until finally they percolate to the surface. So we see this take place in Genesis chapter 13 because they are going to be separated by virtue of the strife between their herdmen, Not a direct conflict between Abraham and Lot, but rather one that is taking place between the, uh, their herdsmen. And so as a result of that, then they are going to separate uh, between the two of them. Um, also, in terms of this, this issue, and um, it's interesting to note that though Lot is a blood relative, well, not directly related, but that Lot is a relative of um, Abram, he's never considered to be an heir of what Abram is going to receive, and receive. In Genesis chapter 15, Abram sets forth his steward as one born in his house who would be heir of um, his household, and yet God says, no, that's not going to be the one, but rather it's going to be somebody else. Um, and so we appreciate that Lot, the flesh, is not going to inherit anything. <laughs> Neither is your flesh will inherit uh, anything. And so in Genesis 15, the Lord sets this before us in an obscure sort of way. In 1 uh, Corinthians 15, 15, the Lord tells us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So again, we see that Lot is not an heir of Abraham. So... I want us to appreciate that Abraham represents the Spirit, and he walks with God. And this we see in Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord comes to him when he's on the plains of Mamre, and he literally walks with God in that chapter. And as a matter of fact, he becomes a mediator between God and Lot, who's down in Sodom. And he and the Lord walk to the edge of the cliff or the edge of the hill, and they look down on Sodom. And that's where he um, mediates Uh, as to whether or not the Lord will destroy the city if there be a certain number of righteous individuals. So he's literally walking with God there. Isaiah 51, 2 tells us that only Abraham was called by God. In verse 2 of chapter 51 of Isaiah, it says, Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And so that while we read in the scripture that Abraham walks with God, we see that in chapter 12, 4 and 5, 13, 1 and 5, we also read that in 13 that Lot walks with Abram. So Abram walks with God and Lot walks with Abram. Interestingly enough, and no surprise, is that the name Lot means a wrapper. A wrapper is something that covers us, so it helps us also appreciate that he's gonna, he represents the flesh. So... What we have set before us here is a common thread throughout the entire Bible from Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation 22, and that is separation and division. God is ever separating the elect from the non-elect, the sheep from the goats, all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end of it, the people of the kingdom of light from the people of the kingdom of darkness, the people that are um, in the the kingdom of God and people that are in the kingdom of Satan. He's always separating things from from another. But here, he's going to separate the elect from the non-elect. In terms of spirit versus flesh. So it's usually between elect and non-elect, but here it's more subtle. It's between the spirit and the flesh. So in 13, we're going to see the division between the spirit and the flesh. Now, just as Lot ends up in a hole in the ground, so too will our flesh go to the grave. Our flesh will not go to glory and we are always at war with uh, between the spirit and the flesh, and it must be put to death. We have to put the spirit to uh, the flesh to death. The Lord says that if any man will be His disciple, they are take to take up His cross and follow Him. In other words, crucify your flesh, and that's a slow and painful process, as I've talked about in the past. But that's nevertheless what the Lord calls us uh, to do. Um, positionally, the flesh has been slain. In Romans eight ten, the Lord says if and if christ be in you the body is dead because of sin but the spirit is life because of righteousness in galatians five twenty four, we read and they that are christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust so positionally those things are true but experientially we are still locked up in this uh, battle between our spirit and our flesh we are constantly at war with it and so we see the admonitions in scriptures um, which are not contradictory to what we just read because this is the experiential versus the positional. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. In other words, like Abram, we are walking through this world as strangers and pilgrims. So he beseeches us as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. We are to abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. Galatians five sixteen and 17, another admonition, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do that ye would. And so this is constantly going on with us as we... Um, uh, navigate this world as as pilgrims. Uh, I don't know when the last time you had a conversation with somebody when you didn't walk away and think to yourselves, I wonder if I should have said that. I wonder if should I should have said something else. I wonder what my motives were for doing that. Um, were they proper? Were they good? Did I do the right thing? Did it bear good fruit? Did it not bear good fruit? I mean, I, I do this constantly. It drives my wife crazy because I leave a, a conversation and she goes, you're still thinking about it. and I'm like, well, yes, I am. Scripture says, in the multitude of speech, there wanteth not sin. So it's very difficult to leave a situation when you've been talking to a group of people or and acting with them and know that you did not sin because you probably did in some way, whether your motives were wrong, whether you said the wrong thing. But nevertheless, we have this constant conflict that is taking place beneath the surface, just as we see it here between Abram and Lot, between their herdsmen. And as it was with them, so it is with us. Um, We're ever desiring to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, that which will not grieve the Holy Spirit which is within us, and do those things which are not of the flesh. Romans chapter 7, of course, sets this before us in a very nice way, and this is the struggle the saint faces, and they will face this until they go to the grave. In verse 19 of Romans 7, he says, for the good That I would, I do not. I want to do the right thing, but I'm not doing it. But the evil which I would not, that I do. I'm doing things I don't want to do. We are saying things that we don't want to say. We are behaving amongst each other in ways that we know is wrong and we don't want to do, and yet we do it. Verse 20, now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law when I would do good, Evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 14, I love, and I found myself saying this last week, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I desire very much to be separated um, from my body. I know that um, no good thing dwelleth in it, I desire to do the right thing, but I can't find the strength within my flesh to do the right thing. I have, you must go to the altar of God and remain there. So the flesh must go, the body must go to the grave. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law with God, but with flesh the law of sin. So here we are up on the plains, up on the mountain. Abraham's going to stay with God. Lot is going to follow the laws of the flesh, and there he's going to go down the plain of the Jordan. So we see this split here between the spirit and the flesh. Um, We do see in Abram's conduct there, which we can appreciate, manifestations of the fruit of the spirit in terms of how he deals with Lot. In Romans 10, 12, it says, in terms of how we should be one with another, as which we see Abram here, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we always did that? Whatever you want, I want to talk about, I want it to go your way. I want to do what is best for you and I want to serve you. Philippians 2 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of other. So we see that with respect a lot here. He says, hey, if you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you want to go to the left, I'll go to the right. You take whatever you want that you think is best for you and I will do uh, the other because I want you to be served. I want what is best for you. And so we can also appreciate some spiritual growth in Abram's life in terms of in chapter 12, we saw that he both feared for his life, his preservation, and he also feared for his providence. Here in 13, we see that he no longer fears for his providence but he trusts that the Lord will provide for him. Hey, I don't care where you take your sheep. I don't care which land you take. I know that it's going to go well with me here. I know that the Lord will provide for me and my flock. So again, we see this wonderful growth in terms of his spiritual um, reliance upon the Lord. So Lot looks down and he follows the fleshy pursuits upon the plain of Jordan, wherein are slime pits, that which we know today as the Dead Sea, and Abram, the spirit, remains upon the mountain. It is... After, after Lot was separated, that the underlying conflict has now been removed, that the Lord then tells Abram to lift up his eyes and behold all that is his. In Romans 4.13, we know that the Lord promised Abram the world, the cosmos. That's what belongs to him. So he lift, tells him to lift up his eyes and behold the promises of God. And the same thing is true with us. When we're contending with our flesh, when we're drawn by the alluring things of this world, we will not behold the inheritance that we have in Christ. We will not appreciate all that we have in him, all the promises that we have in him, all the glory that's to be had in him, this wonderful relationship we have with him because we're stuck up in this battle between um, the spirit and the flesh. Our vision is obscured by the temporal things of this world, so we cannot see the eternal things that God has set uh, before us. So after this is worked out, Abraham then departs from one altar, goes to another altar, so he leaves the place, the mountain between the heap, which is Ai, and the house of God, which is Bethel, and he goes and he dwells in the plain, which in Hebrew means oak, think cross, of Mamre. Mamre means fatness or strength, which is in Hebron, communion. Hebron means communion. So where does he go? He goes from the place between the heap and, and the house of God, to strength and communion with God. And that's what we should do as Christians. We should certainly ever lift up our eyes unto the Lord. He bids us to do that. We should ever be heavenly minded and keep our eyes stayed upon him. Scripture tells us in Philippians 3.20 that our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is certainly strength at the cross, uh, the oak there. There is communion with God, certainly by virtue of the cross. So in summary, with respect for what the Lord has set before here, we can appreciate that Lot is a portrait of grace. Scripture tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. He was certainly long-suffering towards Lot and the debaucherous I don't know what kind of lifestyle he personally lived, but he was living among people that led a debaucherous lifestyle. And Scripture tells us that evil communications corrupt good manners, so it's very difficult to live in a situation that, like he has been living, where there was but one righteous individual. Uh, we learn that from chapter 18, there was only one righteous individual. Um, that, that's not going to affect you, the things that you think about, and all of the incredible strife, internal strife that was going on in his heart says the Lord is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God was not willing that Lot should perish, and so he sent the angels of the Lord down there to rescue him. In Luke chapter 15, verse 4, the Lord says, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? It is not a coincidence that in Genesis 18, when Abraham is is speaking with the angels, when he's speaking with the Lord, that he is 99 years old. So God literally left the 99, the 99-year-old man, and went down to rescue one of his sheep down there in in Sodom. Now, as for the struggles uh, we have with the flesh, we have to let the flesh go because it's going to the grave. Again, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty: flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So how do we live as saints? We are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not us, but Christ liveth in us. And the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And we'll close with that as we celebrate the Lord's table. Amen.